Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John chapter 4. John 4, we'll read verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John 20, verse 31, you will remember, says, But these are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This morning we'll see that Jesus calls the Samaritan woman to embrace two spiritual necessities so that you may know that you have eternal life. There are two essential truths that Jesus persuades this Samaritan woman not only to believe, but to display, which are critical, not only for you and me, but for everyone who might have eternal life. Let's look at the text together and walk through it, shall we? Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judah and departed again for Galilee. You remember that John the Baptist had drawn much attention. John 1.19 says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He had gathered enough attention that they wanted to know who he was. Verse 24 of chapter 1, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So this wasn't just some gaggle of folks who kind of threw themselves together. These were the spiritual leaders of the day wanting to know who John was and what he was up to. 
The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, verse 3 says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All Judea, all the people in the land, in essence, were coming out because John had become a popular preacher. He was an Old Testament prophet. He was a throwback. They hadn't heard from anyone with this kind of credibility in 400 years. So everyone really, in essence, wanted to hear from him. But in addition to that, many people were being converted from Judaism to Christianity. And the symbolism of that conversion was baptism. Of course, the Pharisees would need to check him out. His message was a clear contradiction of that of the Pharisees. They required fulfillment of the law. John preached a message of repentance for one's inability to obey the law. And as I said, he was popular, very popular. On top of that, he confronted their hypocrisy and called them to repentance. This was incredulous to them. How could he think they were less than righteous? But he exposed them. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a wake-up call for the person who has a pretense of Christianity but shows no real interest in repentance. Jesus says the axe is laid at the root of that person's life. The worst thing that person can do is to continue to surround himself or herself with people who do the same thing and separate from those who actually love the doctrine and the practice of repentance. You heard from Ben this morning. Ben, among now nine men, have stood before you as a result of excellent teaching that we received at our men's retreat. And the call is to a life of repentance, confessing and forsaking sin. The Pharisees established themselves with the ability to avoid the need to do that by persuading people to believe, or at least thinking that they persuaded people to believe, that they didn't have sin. This is not uncommon in our day. John's following being massive, if Jesus' following had begun to exceed his, the Pharisees would likely be soon coming after Jesus. The Apostle John mentions here that while he is baptizing more than John the Baptist was, he's doing it vicariously through his disciples. The text says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Similarly, when I was young, my friend's family owned Van Hooser Construction Company. My brother was a close friend of their oldest son. It wasn't unusual if we were driving through town to say, oh, look, the Van Hoosers have started a new housing track over there. Mr. Van Hooser is building more houses. Well, he wasn't building houses. It was employees. It was people who worked for him. He didn't build them. His employees did. Paul followed Jesus' example here in this idea of baptism. 1 Corinthians 4.14 says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For those of you who have joined our church and you were previously baptized, and the baptism was done, in the prescribed New Testament manner, we've said to you that is an authentic baptism. 
So no need for you to be baptized again. Now, if you are convinced that you were not converted until after your baptism, then that's up to you to make that decision. And as many times as we've repeated that practice, I've had a couple people ask me, so if you want to become a member of the anchor, you have to be baptized here, right? No, no, no. That would make us a cult, and we are not a cult. And if you've been baptized uh, properly, it doesn't matter who baptized you. The fact is that if you were baptized faithfully in a New Testament local church, then your baptism took, if you will, so long as it was in fact a reflection of or symbolic of your previous conversion. You got to get the order right. Many of you know I got the order wrong. I was baptized as an infant, and then I was baptized again when I was uh, 21 years old, right out of college. And uh, so when we planted the Anchor Bible Church, the same day I was installed as the pastor of the church, Lance Quinn baptized me subsequent to my conversion. And that's the way it should go. Why are we even addressing this? Well, because John felt the need to point out the fact that it was not Jesus doing the baptisms. Any liberal theologian might easily look at that and say, see, contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's very often the practice to say that someone is doing something when he actually has other people doing it for him. It's not at all unusual. With so many people coming to be baptized, the ire of the Pharisees would be raised as John's and Jesus' use of baptism was symbolic of conversion from Judaism to Christianity. Confident that John the Baptist is capable of carrying on the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of baptism, Jesus leaves town. Doing so could provide substantial opportunity for John's disciples to rest easy that they could still continue to follow John without threat that there was some sort of competition going on between John and Jesus. There's no competition. John had assured them his mission was to usher them into the hands of Jesus, that they would follow him. With him out of town, they could continue to be discipled by John, who would most assuredly continue to point them to Jesus. Verse 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. He needed to. His next providentially ordained ministry meeting in the most unlikely place with the most unlikely person awaited him. He took the path that would get him there most quickly, a three-day walk while he could have avoided the Samaritans altogether. While the shared hatred between Jews and Samaritans was so great that some Jews would likely avoid Samaria when traveling from Judea to Galilee, the Jewish historian Josephus said, It was the custom of the Galileans when they came to the holy city at the festivals to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans, end quote. So, while the mutual loathing was strong, it was not unusual for many Jews to pass through Samaria on their way back and forth from Galilee. And even while there may have been many Jews who would not have traveled this pathway, was this the heart of Jesus? Would it have been Jesus' compulsion to avoid Samaritans, but simply for some sort of necessary geographical need, he chose to go through Samaria? No, he took the normal pathway. And even if the normal pathway had been around uh, and on the other side of the Jordan, in the Transjordan area, the area of Perea, and then up and back over into Galilee, then uh, he wouldn't have done that because it would have been normal for him to take the quickest route. And to do so shows that it was God's will for him to do so. Our text tells us he had to do this. He wouldn't have avoided Samaria so as to perpetuate racial hatred and division. Quite the opposite. Jesus loved all sinners and by his blood would soon ransom people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation, and that included Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. This was the Father's design, and God used simple geography to providentially bring it to pass. This was about Jesus fulfilling his Father's will. It was about his obedience. John frequently used the term that's translated here as had to in describing Jesus' compulsion to obey his Father's will. Elsewhere, it's translated as must. In John 3, verse 14, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Same term. Chapter 9, verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. He had to work the works of his Father. Chapter 10, verse 16. Similarly, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. He must have done what his father decreed. He had to obey him. That's why he went through Samaria. That's the principal reason. So he had to go through Samaria out of obedience to his father's will and out of love for people. Verse 5 of our text, so he came down to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son. This is a reference to Joseph's final conversation with his father Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis 48, 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. While this well is not mentioned in the Old Testament, in verse 6, John says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So about 12 o'clock noon, in the heat of the day, he would have been wearied and thirsting from the three-day walk from Judea. His fatigue is a critical element of his incarnation. This shows him to be the God-man. As the Messiah, he was God and man. He is sinless God-man, yet he suffered the frailties of humanity. He was fatigued. He experienced thirst, among other human frailties. Hebrews 5, verse 7 In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the necessary volitional subordination of the Son to the Father in the Incarnation. Jesus subjected himself to his Father, co-equal in eternity past as God the Son, subordinating himself, subjecting himself to the Father's will during his earthly stay that the Father's glory would be on display. And he did so as a high priest but one who exhibited the weakness of any man-priest. He was a man, and yet he was without sin. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you're wondering about the interaction between the Jews and the Samaritans and which party was most proactive about that vehemence, it was obviously, in her mind, the Jews. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, she says. Well, the first point of your two points this morning, the call to repentance. The call to repentance. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Over the centuries, various churches, in an effort to capitalize on the popularity of the site where Jesus and this woman had this conversation have built buildings over the well and made use of it all the buildings other than the most recent one have 
either been destroyed by Muslims or earthquakes. I was there in 1997, and the well was still quite efficient in full operational form. Its depth is about 135 feet, and it's fed from a very healthy live spring to this very day. The word translated as well is the Hebrew term pege, and it means both dugout well and live spring. And it is both a dugout well and a live spring. I drank from it. There's nothing special about the water. It's just water, of course. It tastes like water. But I also purchased a clay vial of water from a young woman working in the unfinished church building that sat over the well at the time. And I'd hoped to bring that vial back to my sister as a commemorative gift from my studies during my trip to Israel. The vial had a lid on it designed to keep the water in. I brought it back in my suitcase to Los Angeles where I lived at the time. And seven months after my trip, I was able to make it to my sister's home at Christmas time. I passed out gifts to her children and her husband. It was time for her to open her very special gift from Israel. I handed her this vial and asked her to open it. I was so excited for her to see and touch actual water from Jacob's well. When she opened it, nothing came out. The water had evaporated. I told her it must surely still have some residual minerals caught up in the porous elements of that vial from Jacob's well. I told her to hang on to it as one day it would probably be worth about $3 since I had paid $3.50 for it. There's nothing special about that water. There's nothing special, of course, about the vial that it's kept in. But further in verse 11, the woman says to Jesus, where do you get that living water? While there was nothing special and is nothing special about the water that we use in our baptisms, there's nothing special about the water that runs through Jacob's well even today as it did so many hundreds of years ago. Jesus spoke of a different water. He spoke of living water. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? You can see at this point she doesn't get the illustration. That's not unusual. We saw this with Nicodemus. Nicodemus coming from a whole different category of people. He, not only from the Jews, but a leader. In fact, the leader, the teacher of the Jews. Here she is, a woman in natural representation of the Samaritan people. She also doesn't get the illustration the same way. Nicodemus didn't get it. Jacob gave us the well and drank from it himself as his sons and his livestock. She's simply pointing to the fact that this is a real well. It has real water. It was used by the person who had the well dug. It's useful. It was useful then. It's useful today. And she's asking, are you greater than the one who dug and built this well? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. She points to the specialness of this well. He points to the mediocrity of the well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Who knows what's really going on in her mind? But one thing's for sure, she still doesn't completely get it if she gets it at all. She might not get it at all, but certainly she doesn't fully understand what he is saying because she's saying it sure would be nice if I could keep water with me that's never going to run out. You have some sort of miracle water that's never going to run out? Is that what you're talking about? Because I'd much rather not have to come here. It would have been a painful experience for a woman to have to go to a well, especially one in her moral condition. It would have been shameful for her to show herself in public. Having had five husbands, she would certainly have been known in the community for having had five husbands and very likely for currently living with a man who is not her husband. So in addition to the difficult task of going to the well, she went in the heat of the day, very likely to avoid the shame that would come from simply being out in public. Jesus said to her, 
go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus knows what's going on in her mind. He knows what needs to happen in her mind. And so he prompts her with an opportunity to repent. He prompts her with an opportunity to deal with her sin. Now, she doesn't know everything she needs to know about him just yet, but she knows enough about him at this point that he speaks lucidly. He's making sense. He's calling attention to her inadequacies and her misunderstandings of things. And so he drives it home, and she responds. She meets the call, I have no husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. Now, don't think that Jesus is letting her know, just so you know, you're correct in saying that you don't have a husband. In case you were wondering whether or not you have a husband, it's true, you don't have one. He's telling her, you're right. You're displaying rightness. You're showing yourself to exhibit a new reality. You've been living in this way for the time that you've been living in this way, and now you have shown yourself willing to confess your sin. As we've often said, the one thing that you can call a sinner who is unregenerate to is repentance. The one thing that you can certainly call attention to that he is aware of and that he has ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to assess is the reality of his sin. Now, he won't acknowledge the depth of it until God regenerates him. You can't call a person to love Christ. You can't call a person to be obedient to Christ. You can't call a person to submit to Christ until you have made the effort to establish the fact that this person is not right with Christ. It's critical that you address the sinful condition in the same way, or at least in some sense, as Jesus addressed the sinful condition. Jesus not only allowed for her to acknowledge her sin, he unfolded it further. A good evangelist will do that, and he'll do it with grace, but he'll do it with fullness. Not only do you not have a husband, not only are you living with a man who is not your husband, you have hopped from husband to husband to husband to husband to husband. This is the pattern of your life. And in so doing, you have shown yourself to need a personal conversation with a prophet. And so she acknowledges, I perceive that you are a prophet. At this point, she acknowledges that he is not only a Jew, but much more significantly, one who has the credibility of a prophet of God. So she's not going to miss the opportunity to bring up a primary issue of long-term contention between the people she represents and the people he represents. The last two Sundays, we've spent our time in Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. And you see a drastic contrast between the person who loves confession and forsaking of his sin, what the Bible calls repentance. In fact, the Bible clearly in verse 13 tells us that the one who engages in such practice is one who will experience mercy. He will experience compassion. On the other hand, the one who hides his transgressions is the one who will not prosper. Again, I can't help but refer to the testimony that Ben gave this morning, and the testimony that he gave is that truth is doing a magnificent work in his heart and his life, as is the testimony of those in our church who are faithfully involved in our church. For the person who says, I just don't get it, it's just not clicking for me, it's just not happening, something is undercover, something's being hidden. The person who does not want to expose himself to the one who would graciously and lovingly bring truth to bear upon his heart, truth that leads to eternal life, is the one who says, you know what, it's just kind of okay, but I don't really get it. On the other hand, the person who receives a rebuke, he receives a correction, And he says, I perceive that you have insight. And he asks more questions. 
It's quite clear God is doing a work in that person's heart. She asks this question, or she brings this to his attention, really. It's a a question in the form of a statement. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, this contention runs deep, and it runs way into the past, such that she feels the need to bring it up. Oh, you're a Jew. Oh, you're a Jewish prophet. Okay, well, let's talk about the problem. Let's talk about the reality that distinguishes us, that separates us, the disparity between us. She shows a sincere interest in the answer to the question in her heart. This contention runs back more than 960 years. This isn't just something that took place in New Testament Palestine. This dated all the way back to the time of Solomon, even David. Two weeks ago, we looked at 2 Samuel 11, verse 9, where Nathan the prophet said to King David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Thus it begins. In 1 Kings 11, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. I've been there. I've seen that palace. And to look at it is just to strike utter sadness in your heart to know what Solomon did to the people of God by building that palace. Verse 9 goes on to say, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Tragically, Solomon forced manual labor upon the people as well as an unbearable taxation for the purpose of building a palace to house his pagan wife, the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. His excuse was that for her to reside in David's palace would be to defile the palace. So let's just keep her on and build her her own place. It took seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build the palace for his 1,000 sex slaves. The people were, of course, unhappy about the forced labor and needless taxation. So Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam became king. 
And the people said to him in 1 Kings 12, 4, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He sought counsel with older men who said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took the counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Chapter 12 of 1 Kings, verse 10 says, And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And that's what he did. What a foolish, foolish young man. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. The Lord would fulfill his word. You question God's sovereignty. Here it is. It was the fulfillment of God's word that the people would be turned against this young foolish king. Verse 19 says, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This again is a fulfillment of scripture. God says to Solomon, your servant will take the place of the king. Jeroboam had been a servant unto Solomon and had left town in fear of Solomon's efforts to jail him for his treason. Well, here, Jeroboam rules Israel. Rehoboam rules Judah, and you have the division of the two kingdoms. You have the beginning of the intense animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaria was the only major city established by the northern kingdom, Israel. The evil king Omri founded it. Eventually, the entire northern kingdom, all ten tribes, would come to be known as Samaria. By Jesus' time, it had shrunk to the area north of Judea and south of Galilee, but east to west, it still covered the area from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. But after the Assyrians sieged Israel, 2 Corinthians 17.24 says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. This, of course, led to intermarriage among Jews and pagan nations, a clear violation of God's command for Jews not to intermarry with pagans, the command in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And so to this day, when you think the term Samaritan, you very likely think half Jew, half non-Jew, in utter violation to the Lord's command to avoid marriage with pagan nations. Now, just as a side note, this is not a command to avoid interracial marriage today. Many people have misused this text to say that people of one race cannot marry others of another race. It's a complete misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the passage. The issue here is that one who is of the Lord would not marry outside the Lord. You see the same thing repeated in the New Testament. By the time Ezra and Nehemiah began to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem for the protection of the people, they refused to allow Samaritans to participate. So the animosity is perpetuated. And so the Samaritan woman's statement, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jews and Samaritans both acknowledged the need to worship, but there was an obvious disagreement about where it should take place. The Jews recognized the entire Old Testament and believed the place of worship was Jerusalem. God had commissioned Solomon to build the temple, and 
God affirmed that through David's commands to Solomon. First Chronicles 28.10, David says to Solomon, Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then he gives him instructions for the very specific and intricate design. And as we know, God blessed it. This meant nothing to the Samaritans, as they only recognized the Pentateuch and none of the other books of the Hebrew canon. So they clung to Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. Listen closely, and you'll understand where and how they chose to establish their place of worship, which clearly was not Jerusalem. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Well, why Mount Gerizim? Why would they choose to worship at Mount Gerizim? This was where Israel was commanded to shout the blessings once they had entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 27, 12 says, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. The evil king Omri purchased the land and built his palace in the city of Samaria. Israelite kings were buried there. Jezebel influenced King Omri's son, King Ahab, her husband, to make the city the center for Baal worship. Despite the fact that Mount Ebal was clearly higher than Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans sentimentally insisted that Gerizim was the tallest mountain in the world, even as they stood atop it and observed a taller mountain right next to it. You could say that's some hard-hearted sentimentality. They held firmly to the tradition that Adam sacrificed there. Therefore, this must be the place of worship. Josephus reports that Alexander the Great allowed the Samaritans to build their temple on Mount Gerizim. She says, Our fathers worshipped on the mountains, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus' coming words are quite clear to her in correction of that statement. Jesus did away with the notion that geographical location or religious tradition could or should restrict worship. Verse 21 and point two in your outline, the call to worship God in spirit and truth. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Just as a note here, it's commonplace for us to place restrictions on our worship the guardrails, if you will, the bookends between which we ought to live our lives in worshiping the Lord are this, worshiping in spirit and in truth. How can you do that in such a way that encourages others? How can you do that without being some sort of distraction to others? Look at it with me again. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is the key of true worship. It's not about whether or not you raise your hands. It's not about how loud you sing or how well you sing or how poorly you sing. There's some significance to those things, but the real issue is that you are worshiping in spirit the fact that God is spirit, that he himself does not have a body, that he himself is bodiless, that he is the God of all eternity is the basis by which Jesus calls the Samaritan woman to worship in spirit, meaning your body's not the issue. 
Your soul is. Your spirit is. So what is he saying here? Worship with your whole spirit. Worship with your whole heart. Some have sadly interpreted this to mean that it's some sort of mystical call to walk in the spirit or to be in the spirit in some sort of way that you can't really understand, but you can only experience it. We've said many, many times to walk by the Spirit, to be in the Spirit simply means to obey the Spirit as He's given us His Word. It is not so much the idea of obeying the Spirit when you have a feeling and want to do something. Now, if you have a feeling and you want to do something that's clearly given in Scripture, then yes, you would be walking by the Spirit if you choose to obey doing that in the moment. But the restrictions that our society and really our evangelical culture and maybe even our little church has placed on us really ought to be thrown out the window. So long as you're worshiping in spirit and in truth. And this is where we deal with a number of factors. The first factor, obviously, when we talk about truth is scripture. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 said, Father, sanctify them with truth, right? Cleanse them purify them, grow them. Lord, use your word to grow them up, to conform them to my image. What is truth? Jesus defines it. He says, your word is truth. And so then you ask the question, how can I worship in spirit? Because I really want to worship in spirit. I really want to do it with my whole heart. I really want to be in there when it's happening. You know, I can remember years ago, many years ago, at a church that was blessed with vibrant music and people who sang well and sang a lot and sang meaningfully. And I can remember standing in the worship center and looking around thinking, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand the emotion. I don't understand what's happening here. And that later showed to be one of the indications that I was not regenerate. I had no interest in the cross. The cross meant nothing to me. I knew of it. Seemed like a good thing. The resurrection, probably didn't spend much time thinking about it at all, but I had really no interest at all in having anything to do with worshiping in spirit. I felt a, a little left out for sure because I liked these people, but I couldn't imagine what I was missing. What I was missing was the spirit who brings about a willingness to worship in spirit. The Spirit, capital S. God the Spirit who indwells the believer, who moves on a person's heart to want to cry out to God with gratitude. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, when we're given instructions on our sanctification, the immediate prohibition is stop complaining. Be thankful. You struggle with anxiety. You struggle with bitterness. You struggle with gossip. You struggle with malice. It has everything to do with two things. One, you are not nurturing gratitude, and two, you are nurturing ingratitude. Those are easy to remember, aren't they? You're nurturing thanklessness, and you're not nurturing thankfulness. Why would someone sing to the Lord in spirit in fullness of heart, because he means it, because God has done a great work. If, on the other hand, he feels as though he has earned that in any sense at all, then there at least ought to be some point logically, reasonably, at which he would say, well, I should get some of the credit because I was involved. On the other hand, if we are grateful for what God has accomplished, it will mean doing away with all embitteredness, all ingratitude, all speculations where it's not reasonable. There will be a willingness to worship in spirit with fullness. But the worship in truth means to be subject to Scripture while you do that. And so this helps us strike a balance in that which is distracting and that which is not. You can raise your hands. But don't take this attitude. You know, whatever I do is between me and the Lord. We've kind of destroyed that way of thinking around here, haven't we? I hope. I mean, you have an interdependence with the body of Christ. Your Christianity is not about you and Jesus. It's about you and the body of Christ. Can you do what you do in spirit and in truth? Meaning, applying everything you know from God's truth about the one and others. 
everything you know about sacrificing for others, giving to others, serving others, correcting others, teaching others. And by the way, being all those things by others as well, being corrected, being rebuked, being taught, being encouraged, being strengthened, praying for each other. All those things that you see in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, I've often boiled that down to the little phrase, you need the body and the body needs you. And when you begin to slip out of that legitimate interdependence, one of two things happens. Either you start feeling freedom or you start feeling lost. And if you're starting to feel freedom, then you should be frightened. And if you're starting to feel lost, come back. Engage. Subject yourself. Put the idols in the proper place of priority rather than at the head of the priority list. Worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 24, it's our memory verse for next week. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God doesn't have a body. Your body's not the issue. Worship in truth. Worship with the body of Christ in mind. If Brad has quoted it once, he's quoted it a hundred times. We are to come together and admonish one another, teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Can you really go a week without doing that with your local body? I mean, it's hard for me. I'll tell you, when we've been on vacation, I mean, a couple times, we've been away for two weeks in a row. And our practice is, you know, if we go to church and we're out of town, we do. If we don't, we don't. It's the last time we did. I was preaching. I kind of needed to show up. <laughs> Another worship service, I felt like I needed to go. My Grace Advance brother in St. Louis was counting on me being there. I wanted to support him, and so it was a joy to be there for him. Let me just tell you something. I don't need any other local church. I need you. And I mean I need you. I don't need, when I go to St. Louis, Missouri, or to somewhere in Texas when I'm visiting my brother-in-law, or, you know, when we go on vacation, when we go somewhere, I don't need to participate in another local church. That in and of itself shows a consumer mindset. I just need to get fed. I just need to engage. I just need to be involved with believers. No, no, no. You need to be involved with the believers that are in your body because you don't know anybody else. You don't really know other believers. Now, if you do, I wouldn't refute that, but you know that's an exception. That's an exception to your local body. Nothing wrong with you having a close, tight relationship with your biological sister uh, across the country who is also your Christian sister. In fact, that's great, and I strongly encourage you to maintain that. That's a great supplement to your involvement in your local body. You need a shepherd. You need a faithful shepherd, and by God's grace, you have a significant number of men at your fingertips in that regard in your local church. But as we've often said, your role is every bit as important as theirs. You know that? You say, well, I'm not doing nearly as much as they are. Well, pick up the pace. <laughs> Just get started. Just get involved. How do I do that? Talk to your family group shepherd. You know, some of you might be in a season where you're not doing as much as you used to. That's okay, especially if you just got married or you're about to get married or having a baby, you know, things like that. Maybe you're having a hard life. Your job is difficult or you've lost a job. You can't find a job. There are seasons in our lives where this looks different, and we should never, ever think that there's this cookie-cutter template where everybody has to look exactly the same. But your involvement in the body is critical, and that involvement shows itself in a willingness to be subject to the Lord by worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, not just in the worship service, but in every area of your life. Your life is a holy, living sacrifice unto God, Romans 12 tells us. Now, let me just warn you, at the point where you begin to really see this in Scripture, and you begin to appreciate it. 
and you begin to grow in your understanding of it, and you begin to grow in Christ, you begin to mature, someone is going to see your love for your local church, and they're going to say, wow, it looks like you're part of a cult. And the reason they're going to say that is because they have never been involved in a real local church. Now, not everybody makes that statement, but the person who does and thinks that legitimate body, koinonia, fellowship, interdependence is cultic, thinks that because he's never experienced it. And you don't even know whether or not he's ever actually seen it in Scripture. Well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things hasn't quite got it yet. Certainly she's listening. Certainly she believes he's a prophet. Certainly she has been willing to embrace the correction. Certainly she has been willing to show humility. Certainly she has been willing to show repentance. But now there might be some frustration. And so she's willing to, at this point, just kind of acquiesce to the coming Messiah. His response, I who speak to you am he. Now note something. Note something in this text. I'd circle it in your Bible if I were you. The word he is not there in the original language. This is important. What he's saying is, I am. This is one of a large number of times in the book of John where he makes this declaration. The most significant of which is in John 8, 58. And this is a, a look back to Exodus Chapter 3, verse 14, where when our brother Moses said, Okay, Lord, who shall I say sent me? What is his name? They're going to ask me that. He said, Tell them I am. In the Hebrew, it's Yod, Hey, Wow, Hey. It's right to left. It's pronounced Yahweh if you have to pronounce it. They didn't know how to pronounce it, and they didn't. And often today, when you see G hyphen D with your Jewish Facebook friend, the reason he's doing that is because he is choosing not to take the Lord's name in vain. They didn't have vowels, so they didn't know how to pronounce it. We don't really know how to pronounce it. You know, the Jehovah's Witness wants to tell you it's Jehovah. Well, just remind your Jehovah's Witness friend that the word Jehovah is actually an English transliteration of a German transliteration of a Hebrew word. But the trouble with that is it's not wrong, but it's also not singularly right. It's not exclusively right. In fact, it's less right than Yahweh. This is who God first declared himself to be, the eternal one. And so when the Jews said to Jesus, who are you? His response was same as what God told Moses. In fact, he says it this way. He qualifies it. Just to be clear, he says, before Abraham was... He doesn't say, I was, but before Abraham was, I am. It's without tense. It's past, present, and future tense because it has no tense. The eternal one. And that's exactly what Jesus says to her here. And she would have known what he meant. The Messiah is here. God in the flesh is sitting on this well with me, looking me in the eye. Next week, we'll see how she responds. But for now, we'll close with Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know, very often those who are imprisoned in a false religion with some emotional attachment to their religious traditions are in great need of a conversation where their misconceptions can be overturned by Scripture so that they may be given the hope that comes only from Jesus Christ. And the best way for you to prepare for that conversation is to remind yourself that we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the Messiah, God in the flesh, the anointed one, the God-man who came to bear sins and in so doing showed compassion for a self-righteous, pharisaical, well-known teacher who came in the middle of the night, but also willing to show compassion for an adulterous woman who in the heat of the day went to get water. Lord, we thank you that he gave her living water. It would seem, Father, that he saved her in that moment, that he granted her grace in giving her living water, gave her eternal life that she too would want to see others have eternal life. Father, we plead with you now that you would help us to boldly and with confidence approach the throne of grace and that we might do so in spirit and in truth. Amen.